Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. We're once again threading time zones here. We have Virginia, USA, Brazil, and Melbourne, Australia. And today uh, we have Dr. Carla Luguetti and Loy Singaboya. Um, Carla's a lecturer at Victoria University in Melbourne, and Loy was a co-participant in the study. And we're actually talking about two papers today. Um, I co-authored with uh, Ramon, uh, Ramon Spaige, um, and you can say if I pronounced that incorrectly or not. Um, so the two articles, the first one, Towards a Culturally Relevant Sport Pedagogy, Lessons Learned from African-Australian Refugee Background Coaches in Grassroots Football, uh, which was recently published. And another paper off of the same project came up, um, which is titled Stop Mocking, Start Respecting, an activist approach meets African-Australian refugee background young woman in grassroots football. Um, I'll put the links and the full citation of both the articles in the notes, but uh, Carla and Loy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Hi, Risto. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here again. You know, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm so excited to be here today with Loy. Uh, I, was so, I was so lucky to find Football Empowerment, you know, the institution where both studies took place, to co-design a study and meet Loy as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I also uh, want to acknowledge the third author of this paper, Ramon Spy. So that's how we pronounce his last name, Ramon Spy. Thank yeah. you, Risto. And you said it like a perfectly great uh, Brazilian. You said Ramon, which is good. <laughs> uh, so thanks for coming on, Loy. Uh, we'll get to a, a couple questions. I really am in interested in your experience in this project. Uh, but let me uh, start with Carla. Can you explain what culturally, rele uh, culturally responsive pedagogy is to you? And maybe you can also explain why I say culturally relevant and culturally responsive and culturally sustaining because these terms are kind of used um, interchangeably a lot. So what, is, what does it mean to you? Yeah, sure, So I see culturally responsive pedagogies, pedagogies that we recognize young people's strengths, capabilities, knowledge, and resources. So it is not a pedagogy where young people need to fit in or assimilate. Do you know uh, how sometimes we see sport programs like organizations where we have external providers and young people have to adopt the value implemented by providers? So I don't think that's culturally responsive pedagogy. It is also not a pedagogy that positions young people as problems to be fixed. So let's save those kids, let's help them. So I don't think that's culturally responsive pedagogy either. So in my perception first, culturally responsive pedagogy believed on the kids. So the kids, they have the knowledge to understand, to critique, and to transform barriers they face. So it's kind of putting them at the center. Second, Culturally responsive pedagogy, as Gloria Ladson Billy says, it is a pedagogy where we should know, nurture and support cultural competence. So environments where all students, all kids feel respected, and it is well-grounded 
in their identity, in their culture. So let's build relationships. Let's understand people's lived experiences. And the last one, in my perception, so culturally responsive pedagogies should aim critical conscientiousness. In Portuguese, conscientização. So allowing teachers and coaches and students to critique the norms, values, and institutions that we know that produce and maintain social inequities. So as you know, so we live in a world with so many inequities, so we have to talk about those inequities and together trying to negotiate and transform. Like in my perception, I see culturally responsive pedagogies as a big umbrella, and I would say that Gloria Ladson believes pedagogies, I would say, as one culturally responsive pedagogy, and a, an amazing one. So that's the reason it is the theoretical framework we use in our first paper. Yeah, and I and I tried to pronounce that name in Portuguese, that word cultural co uh, consciousness, which is much easier said in English, I think. And you, you talk about uh, Paulo Freire bringing that up, but um, I just kept on looking at that word, and it's such a tongue twister for me. Can you say that one more time? Conscientização. Oh, man, it's a <laughs> tough one. Uh, so, Loy, let me ask you this. I mean, Carlos talked about before in the paper about more the need for more sport-based intervention programs that use this culturally responsive pedagogy. Lloyd, can you explain or talk about the benefits that this approach can bring to coaches and young people in programs? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, like Carla said, um, it's basically looking at the strength of young people. It's accepting that um, the differences that each, of, each one of us has is a strength. Um, you don't really want to impose um, your own belief on someone else or whatever you think is right for this specific people on them, it's allowing them to express themselves, giving individuals the opportunity to be like, um, my inability to speak proper English is not a, it's not a hindrance for me to play sports. Um, and I think it's more having people feel that, um, they are valued and respected in the areas where they are in, in sports-based environments. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's knowing that it, it gives people a, comfort, a sense of belonging, a sense of comfort, that they, um, they are respected, that not just because I'm from a refugee background or I'm from a um, migrant background, I can't fit into sports or I can't do specific sports. Um, it allows people to be people. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it actually allows you to just enjoy the moment, feel like you're you're a part of that community. And I think that's what the strength is. Um, accepting people's differences gives them give them a sense of belonging and a sense of um, security, if yeah. one may say, because that's what I felt. Um, there's so much. Um, so much that young people are given and when they're in an environment where they feel like um, an environment where their strengths are respected, where their 
um, where the differences is not a barrier for them. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Feel, I feel that people feel like they're more safe. Yeah. So I think it's, there's so much benefit to it. Yeah, and it was interesting because I, I read and we, Carla, you talked about the activist approach in, in this process. And when I was reading it, there were things that you wanted to do in the second paper. There were things that you were like, hey, you should do this and you should do this. And then, but you understood as a facilitator that it's not your call to tell them what to do, even though you think that it was better in your opinion, but they weren't ready for that or they felt like their issues or things that they wanted to put the activist approach into was something different. And so you, as a facilitator in an activist approach, understood that you needed to give up the power. You needed to step aside. So I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that and, and how this activist approach helps this process, specifically with how you ran this activist approach in, in the paper. Yeah, so, uh, but I, I also, I want to mention that the culturally relevant pedagogy was there before the activist approach. So as we described in paper one, you know, the coaches were what we said, the barrier breakers, mm -hmm. like they were supporting the development of young people. The coaches considered the kids as a family and they coached creative spaces for young people to develop awareness to that allowed them to critique the social inequities. So I, I always say that the activist approach found an activist institution. So in the first phase, Risto, I conduct a ethnography, like a two-month ethnography. So I was playing with the girls, Lloyd might remember that, to understand, you know, uh, the young people's lived experiences. Then, like I identified that the girls and young women, they face barriers in the sports program that we could better understand and try to overcome. So that's when I invited Lloyd and all the girls and young women to co-create a sport program. And then we worked together four months and we had a first phase in an activist approach called Building the Foundation, where we understood, you know, who they, they were and the barriers that they faced. And we had a second phase, an activist phase. So given what we learned in the Building the Foundation phase, we co-created and implemented with participants an action. And in our case, was a coaching workshop. So that's what, what you know, all co-participants decide to do. But I always say that the activist approach uh, happened in a space uh, where we had people open to change. So an uh, activist institution uh, accepts an activist approach. So let me ask about the coaches, because when, I'm, when I read the paper, it talked uh, one of the papers talked about the different coaches and they all had refugee backgrounds. And this was a program specifically geared towards uh, refugee background people. And, you know, we talked about in the paper of the cost barriers to playing club football, the overwhelming cost to be able to play at an elite level. But this program subsidized that or gave that for free. So uh, was there... 
and Loy, maybe you can answer this, is was there like a more of an influence of having coaches with similar migrant or cultural backgrounds on the development of young people through this culturally responsive pro- uh, approach? Like, was it, was it special or was it meaningful because the coaches also had a similar background as the athletes? Yeah, no, I think I think that's what worked. Uh, that what's what works best. I think. Um, so you have the tendency to connect and relate very well when there is a shared, I guess, shared values or shared shared understanding. So there's a level of connection. You connect with people where there's commonality, and um, so quite often, like when you're from a a culturally diverse background, there's a tendency to be to feel like an outsider, high levels mm-hmm. to feel like an outsider. Like, like for me, doing sports, like I did tennis for over six years. And um, from my club, there was like barely six or five people from that culturally diverse background. So there was no, like I, we were the minority. And most of the time we tend to relate more because we were we were different in a way. So for me, having that um, shared experience or shared, um, shared, um, I guess, background with the coaches made me relate to them more. Um, So I felt like there was less a sense of judgment because quite often um, when you are the minority or when you are um, the different, quote unquote, different, Mm -hmm. you 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 tend to feel like you're either judged differently or viewed differently. And um, with this kind of program, I feel that having coaches of from the same background or similar backgrounds give young people an opportunity to actually be free, be very open to, in what they want to do, in how they want to express themselves. There's no confinement to how to express themselves. Um, I felt and I think that it's very important if um, you really want to be successful in sports-based programs, uh, at least have one or two people that young people can really open up to. Because these coaches are not just um, coaches, they're also friends. You build friendships through this, and that's what you want. You don't want to have like a, an authoritative figure. You don't want to have someone that you, you're afraid of. If it's, it's your coach, yes, um, be afraid of your coach when it's time to be serious, it's time to be serious, but when it's time to joke, I want to joke. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be restricted because of, or I, I feel different, or um, I'm an outsider. You don't want that. Yeah. So what this, um, this program does, I think it allows um, young people, males and females, children and young and old, to freely express themselves with these coaches, to have relationships, to build friendships. Uh, and yeah, I absolutely think that um, it's important um, to have those kind of relations. Yeah. And this, it's very, uh, it relates a lot to the book club that we just did on, uh, Bever- I think it's Beverly Tatum's book on why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And it talks about race in schools in the U.S. and how, you know, it's not that 
that's just how it is. They go to certain peer groups because you can connect with that peer group because you have similar lived experiences. And those people who have gone through certain experiences can be more empathetic. So it's not to say that some an outsider cannot be a great person in that community, but it's if that person has never had experience in that community, they might judge different things differently. And and I'm I'm curious uh, to you, Carla, because I looked at your descriptions, you and Ramon. You are both immigrants to Australia. Now you're not necessarily refugee immigrants, and you know, for Ramon being a Dutch male, he doesn't fit the same role as somebody from Africa. You come from another continent into Australia, but it seemed like they were like layers of immigrants. It was like the immigrant researcher, the immigrant coach, the immigrant participant. So I'm curious of how much did that positionality, because you talked about like you are partly an insider because of certain status, but you're partly an in-betweener outsider because you weren't the same, and I'm putting air quotes here, type of immigrant into, into Australia. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And and I always mention like to Loy how like she was amazing both phases of the project and was essential in establishing trust because I was an outsider. So like it's funny because I don't see myself white in Australia because I struggle struggle with my language. Like I see myself as a third world woman living in Australia. But I understood that, like, in relation with the co-participants, like, they, they saw me as an outsider. So Loy and I, we had many meetings where I could reflect about my positionality. So I believe I was more outsider. We were never, like, completely outsider, completely insider. But I see myself more in an outsider position. And that's why you know one of the reasons Loy was essential because she was kind of bridging the culture you know like a cultural bridge uh so establishing trust for example i remember the meetings that we had you know myself and Loy, and we rewrote the coaches interviews so for the the interviews to to make more sense for the coaches we also planned the activities with the girls and young women. So I, I, I was always asking Loy, you know, do you think it's going to work? And Loy was always honest in this relationship. So she was a co-participant that helped a lot. And I always say to her, like, I, I don't see how, how we would design or we would co-create all this knowledge with her without her like we yeah i believe we needed her so much for the development of both projects yeah i remember in high school um we used to go up uh and practice with santa Ana high school which was 99 percent uh latin american immigrant like high school and you know i was this like white guy that came in and worked out once they heard that I had a green card, that I was an immigrant to the U.S., my relationship changed with those kids. And we were like 17, 18, but there was something there that I was no longer just 
a white guy from south of the county, I was kind of like one of them uh, in that sense. So uh, that's interesting. Now, Loy, can you just give an overview? What what is football empowerment? What is, what is the program that um, you you're so invested in? Yeah, um, football empowerment. Um, so football empowerment was established in 2006, I think. No, 16, established, formally established in 2016. Um, so it's just um, a program that helps um, individuals from the Western suburbs, so um, young people that can't afford, um, afford sporting fees. So this platform is, um, a platform to give them that opportunity to participate in sports. Um, so it's a way of um, allowing young people, both males, females, young and old, um, to be like, if I want a, a, um, a career in sports and finance is an issue, I have this platform to go to. Um, so football empowerment has provided young people an opportunity to actually live out their dreams, some of them, that one of the few sports. Um, and also it's, it's also assisting young people in other, um, other areas outside of just football. So employment also. So that's one of the other things they've really stepped into. Um, so where there's high levels of um, unemployment in young people, they have actually stepped in and be like, oh, and they would refer or connect young people. So um, networking is the term I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So networking has been in, uh, significantly improved um, through football empowerment for young people. Um, so it's really an organization that um, really looking after in young people from culturally diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Giving them a voice, I would say. Yeah. And, and so, Carla, can you explain what the research study part was in this? Like, what, what role did that play and kind of explain that? Yes, sure, Risto. So, we, have, we wrote two papers. So, in each paper, we used a different methodology and also different participants, but all in the same organization, as, as Loy was saying. So, in the first paper, that we wrote, we described the results of our ethnographic phase uh, and also the coaches' interviews. So participants included Loy and four coaches. Uh, Loy interviewed the coaches and we created the questions together. Uh, in the second paper, the activist approach with the girls and young women we had myself as a participant, Loy, and 12 young women. Uh, thinking about methodologically, we used participatory action research, and the participatory action research took four months. And we collect multiple data sources. So, for example, my field notes, collaborative meetings with the young woman. We also use photo voice and all generate materials. So everything that we produce in those collaborative meetings. And as I mentioned before, we have Loy in this role of being a cultural bridge. So we also had meetings, myself and Loy, uh, and she helped me in the process of analyzing the data. 
So talking about what's happening in the last session and then planning to the upcoming work session with the girls and young women. So the whole process of action reflection that we see in participatory action research had law as an important, essential element in this process. And in addition, uh, she also helped with the discussion of positionality as you we were talking before Risto. So being an outsider, like feeling like an in-betweener, but in reality being more an outsider, I face a challenge in, in building relationship in this group. And I think playing with them was something that helped me a lot to, to be more accepted. But I have to be honest, if you see the second paper, like Loy guided all uh, activist phase. So the decision of the activist phase and also how the girls and young women organized themselves. So Loy was the person responsible. So I was like losing my power, what I think it is great in a participatory action research. And she was leading the activist phase. So we had two different methodologies uh, for our two days. So I was going to ask this as a joke and then it became a serious question. How good are you at <laughs> soccer? And I'd like to get each of you to rate yourself on a one to 10 scale, 10 being messy, one being very terrible soccer player. And the reason I want to know this is be because did you or your skill level in football, did that affect how you were treated by those people because in my experience in the reach program i ran a basketball program year one and i was at like a level two in basketball so the sixth graders would beat me in basketball so i had less respect from them than my colleague who played at the highest level at the university and was very skillful and so when he walked into the room people were like oh ray's here like i want to learn from him so where do you rate yourself? And then um, a bonus question, which one is better, Loy or Carla and soccer and football? <laughs> Carla, you, do you want to go first? <laughs> I, I think Loy. No, you go, you I'll go, go first. So I don't embarrass myself. I'll go first. Um, I personally will give Carla the, the better football player because, um, um, yeah, no, she, she plays it with passion. She does. Um, <laughs> for me personally, um, my story is a little bit different because I didn't start off as a soccer player. Mm -hmm. My first introduction to competitive foot, um, competitive soccer was through football in pound. Um, so, um, so as I said earlier, I played tennis. So tennis, yes, I'll smoke color in that one. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in soccer, she will definitely, she definitely takes it. Um, so my first introduction to football was uh, football empowerment. So uh, my skill levels are not that great, but they they improved because um, we went on to play for a club, um, the girls from football empowerment, and we ended up taking the championship, uh, the championship for uh, state and league. So um, I guess I said something about um, the coaching stuff. <laughs> But um, overall, I'll rate myself, I uh, what, uh, maybe a five or just under five. 
Carla, what do you think? Yeah, Loy, I loved how you said, like, Carla plays with passion. I love it. That, yeah, that, that's a good, a good definition. Like, I would not score myself, but I, yeah, so I always play uh, with passion. And I, I was lucky because the whole data collection happened in an indoor football space, so futsal. And I used to play futsal. So I'm completely lost in, in football, out, uh, outdoor football. I think, Lloyd, like, you saw me playing. I, I'm, I'm really bad in outdoor football. But I have more experience in, in, in indoor football. Yeah, so I played, you know, I've been yeah, involved in futsal since I was 12 years old. So, yeah, I like, I really love futsal. And I was lucky that the data collection happened in the Futsal context. <laughs> well, it's it's all it's always good to get a compliment to say you play with passion, especially in one of the most passionate sports across the world. So, um, let me ask you this, Loy. Uh, the one of the papers talked about barrier breakers, and they were that they were connecting with young participants as a family. Like the family word came up a lot. Um, but they were also taking this to life skill development, not just skill development in, in the sport. So can you tell us a little bit more about how they achieved these outcomes and what the barrier breakers were about? Yeah. Um, barrier breakers, I think that was, a, that was a conversation that came up frequently in the interviews with the coaches. Um, so they called themselves barrier breakers, um, breakers, I beg your pardon, because of the narrative, they were changing the narrative mm -hmm. of young people, um, uh, young people from culturally diverse backgrounds. Um, to them, um, they were giving young people the opportunity to participate in sports um, without the financial barriers. And for some of them, um, for most of the females that were participants, um, being from culturally diverse backgrounds, playing sports or Soccer is considered soccer is considered a male sport, and when individuals from those backgrounds see, um, they don't like seeing the young women participate in male sports. So it, that was that was an issue they had um, actually getting females to participate in sports, getting an actual team together was a struggle. But um, with assistance, um, they were able to actually. Um, get a girls team going and um they were bringing parent and parents were dropping kids because they knew it was free <laughs> mm -hmm. and so when you take their finance out of the equation you're like okay you can go <laughs> you can do whatever you want um so them dropping their kids or waiting for the young girls there um or they'll sit there and they would watch so this gave them an opportunity to actually break that barrier of seeing that this is just a male sport and that um, if your young girl, a young woman wanted to participate in sports, wanted to do, uh, wanted to play soccer, they could play soccer. And for for most of them, for the coaches, I think it's to showcase the girl's talent, enable that to actually occur. And that's what the program has been has been doing. Um, when parents are there, they're seeing these girls play, and that's in a way, breaking the barrier or breaking um, the, the mentality that it's just a male sport. 
So in a sense, that's where I think they were coming from, that there are barrier breakers. And also um, I mentioned earlier about networking. So in that sense also, um, trying to reduce employment, unemployment, unemployment rates among um, young people from culturally diverse backgrounds. So they, in a way, yes, that statement is very accurate to describe the cultures. Um, in the sense, they are they are breaking barriers. The fact that they're giving these young people um, opportunities to actually um, not just focus solely on sports, but also another area that is affecting them, and which is unemployment. Yeah. Uh, and they are that network that is trying um, to reduce unemployment, and also um, that showcasing of young girls' talent to let parents know. Um, for most of them, your young girls have talent. Mm-hmm. And if you give them opportunities, they can be the next marches of this world. Yeah. And, and to give them opportunities that are free. And that's why it's so important to have these after-school programs, out-of-school programs, community programs that somebody puts up the money to, or people volunteer to put them up so people can go in. They don't have the threshold of paying X amount to be able to participate. And I just don't think that there's enough of those programs in, in the communities that really need them. And I, and I think that when we really start looking at sport programs, some of them are very elitist. Some of them, you know, the ones that we ran uh, in the after-school program in California, we had maybe 30, 40 kids in the after-school program. And not one of them was in a sports team outside of that program, which was not a, an elite level program that we ran. But I was so surprised with that. And I asked why, you know, why aren't you playing for the Fullerton Rangers? And then I went and looked how much a season, which there's three seasons in a year costs. And no, like somebody making minimum wage or a low, low income, they're never going to send their kids there because it's, it's a huge part of their monthly income. So I just feel that that's very, yeah. very sad. But um, let me ask you, Carla, um, I'm, I'm curious about how the media portrays African-Australian refugee background young people in that community. You, you wrote in the paper that Victoria is one of the centers of refugees. When they come to Australia, they come to that specific uh, region. So can you tell us about the like the social inequities, Laura, you talked about low unemployment or low employment rates. Um, you know, what are what are the participants experiencing and how was the program able to kind of disrupt some of that? Yeah, sure. So, so I remember one day, you know, when I arrived in the training session and one of the coaches were was like wearing a suit. And I saw the kids like talking about that, you know, and it was so funny because uh, he arrived and he didn't change his clothes. So, and I was, I was like asking myself, like, why was he wearing a suit all the time, all the time? And then I asked another coach and the coach mentioned that he was wearing a suit to show to the kids his professional achievement. So, and in the interviews that Loy also did after that, they talk about like how, and we see like the act of wearing a suit 
highlight a kind of counter narrative of African Australians as, for example, trouble or criminals. Like, you know, the kinds of ways that the media unfortunately portrays them. Uh, and the coaches, they were from the same community as what was mentioned, so same background. And also former football players. So the whole program was informed by the lived experiences, the struggles that the coach faced as African Australians. Uh, they themselves had experiences, the complexities. So that's that's what I was mentioned before. So experiences of forced migration and experiences in racism. Uh, one of the limitations we found in the program, it is, I don't think we had empirical evidence enough to show how coaches explicitly, they address, you know, those issues. If you think about the power imbalance between, like, media and African-Australian communities in Australia, uh, I, I don't see how, like, explicitly how they would address. So they, I think they should, for example, use more, more activities to name, critique, and de negotiate those harmful media discourses. But we, we found some, and that's, that's for sure an important element in, in the football program. So I'm, I'm wondering how much... How much overlap is there in you? You had a couple of articles, Carla, 18, 19, 20, that you talked about doing a program in Brazil and it was a sport based youth development program and it was in a low income community. And now these papers that came out 2021 in a completely different country in a completely different population because the Brazilian kids you worked with were local kids in that community. These people are coming into a new community. So, you know, those, both of those were, you know, you publish all these papers, you have kind of two rigorous studies and long-term engagement. How do they overlap? Like, is there similarities that you see? Are they completely different studies? Where, where does that kind of yeah. come in? Yes, that's a good question, Risto. I think the similarities that I can see is the resilience in the young people that I had, you know, I was so lucky to work with in, in, in all the contexts that I was working with. So I could see the resilience. Like in Brazil, with the life of crime that I wrote, the life of crime does not stay, stop and think. So in that paper, I talk about, you know, uh, the struggles they face, but in the same time, how they believe in, 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 in possible change. And, and that's, that's exactly what I've seen in this program as well. Uh, for me, the biggest difference, and I, I don't think we have lots of studies in the area, it is at the first time that I'm working like with young people with the same background as the coaches, and actually, the whole program, it is emerged from, you know, kicking around and from, like, coaches that want, wanted to make change for their own community. So I always study NGOs that they have this external provider in the NGO. That's the first time that we don't have that. 
-hmm. We have a completely bottled up uh, institution. I'm not saying that we don't have any problems. We have, and we show in the second paper, yeah. <laughs> you agree with me. And exactly. what I'm saying, it is that's unique. And if we see the studies that we have, I always mention that to Lloyd, like all studies that we have with more marginalized population, we have these external providers that they, you know, we, we have a gap of studies that trying to understand the beauty of programs that emerge from that community, their needs, and so on. So that's, for me, the big difference in this project. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about the activist approach, especially working with young young girls, because you know we ran that uh, the reach study that you cited. Thank you very much for that citation. Uh, that you talked about working with young girls in an activist approach, and so can you share a little bit more about that process or just that pro uh, the project in general? Yeah, sure, uh, Riso, and, and I think I want to allow also to, to talk about that since she also lived that experience. You know, the first eight weeks, uh, the study was designed to identify what facilitates and hinders their engagement in sport, and then we understood that the lack of female representation in the sport program was their main concern, uh, was not an easy process, so, so eight weeks. We used also photo voice, what I really enjoy using as methodology. And given everything that we learned in those eight weeks, we co-create uh, an action and collectively uh, we decide a coach's workshop. was not that beautiful because if you read the paper, you see how I was pushing them to no, let's have this, you know, big seminar. We can articulate with my university and then, and I had those, you know, big ideas. And what they truly need was something that, you know, they could help educate their coaches about the social injustices that they were facing. Uh, so, yeah, and I think they, they we, we all learn a lot in this process. Uh, they, they mentioned that things like together we have the power and the importance of speaking up to those in charge. So we learn a lot, but I, I, I want to like also mention what she thinks about the activist phase. Um, yeah, for me, I think that was one of the most uh, important. Um, this was the what I think the girls really needed. They needed their voices heard. Um, and um, that gave them an opportunity to actually talk to those in charge, um, those in power, to tell them, no, um, you guys are doing great, but you can improve in this area. In order to make this process um, an easier process for us women, you need to, We these are our concerns. And if there's ways for you to improve, actually, no, there is ways for you to improve because they provided solutions to those concerns, which was the fun part about it um, because it wasn't just like, oh, here are our concerns, deal with it. It was like, no, we have concerns. Uh, these are our concerns and these are the solutions. 
we are giving you the solutions to apply in order for you to fix this for us. So it's a, a an inclusive and it's a um, a more fun environment for us women to be part of. And I think that's what I really like the most about this whole research because the outcome is what I wanted to see. Where will we go? It's great to do a research. It's great to have all this information collected, but exactly what do I, what do we want to come out of it? And I think this was the outcome. To have these young women sit the coaches down and tell them, hey, um, this, is, this is what we're feeling. We, we like this. We like that you're doing this. We like that you're giving us an opportunity to show our talent. But give us a bit more. We want a bit more. And that's what they were able to express. And that's what I really um, enjoyed myself um, personally. Because it's not just about those girls. It's about those that will come after them. For example, myself, as going to 25, uh, going 25, 26, I won't, I won't focus much on just the sport. There'll be a time where I'll just, okay, it's time for me to just take a step back from sport. But then you don't want to just leave that empty place there. You want someone to actually feel when I'm, when Roy's gone out of that place, someone else needs to step in. And people want to go into a place where um, it's an environment that's for everybody. Yeah, and Lloyd, can, yeah. can I ask you a follow-up question on that? Because so far, yeah, sure. about the activist approach, so far, you know, we have people who have PhDs that run an activist approach. And it's Kim Oliver, PhD, runs an activist approach. Carla Liguetti, Oscar Nunez Enriquez, you know, my master's student, ran this study. And so to me, one of the questions that I have outlying is how does this work in a non-researcher like led area? Like you're not getting a PhD in sport pedagogy. How do you, Mm. how did you find this to be like, was it hard for you to learn the activist approach? Was it natural? Was it something that was easy for you to kind of understand or did you have growing pains in trying to figure out how to run this the way that Carla kind of presented this activist approach to you? Uh, to be quite honest, it's a combination of everything you almost mentioned. It's a combination of all. Um, yes, the concerns that I had for the young women was definitely played a significant part in actually um, bringing this activist approach forward. Um, so, but also uh, my interest also as well um but and it was easy in the sense that all they're all tied together um it all ties together from my lived experience what i want to know um it all ties together so um i think that it was in a sense easier to get into because of my experiences um as a young woman in this program some of the things that went net, I want them. I want them to be addressed by those in authority, and this platform to be um, a participant um, or a co-researcher gave me that platform to actually bring it out, yeah. um, to bring these things to the coaches. So yeah, in a in a sense, everything uh, ties together. I love it. 
And I think that more and more, I feel like after school is, or outside of school or community is where this approach works so well. It's very hard for me to have a physical education or HPE teacher do this in, in, let's say in Virginia, where they sometimes get 60 minutes a week of physical education. Like, it's very hard to sit down and have these conversations, whereas in a sport program, you, you have the time, you have the flexibility. So, um, Carla, I'll, I'll give you the last word here um, as we're kind of wrapping this up. Can you talk about your role in sharing power and engaging in dialogue and how, like, how that promoted change in the program? Yes, sure, Risto. But I also mentioned, I want to mention that we are still making change so I want to just mention that we are developing a new project in football empowerment. And it's a project where we want to scale up what we did, you know, with the girls and young women to the other groups. So I'm like with Loy, Adut, and Kashin, so all young women in the project. And we are all together planned, you know, like what we are going to do in the next four months. So, for example, Monday will be our meeting number seven. And I'm so happy to see that one of the first times in, in, in my uh, research career where I am co-designed the whole research with the, my co-participants. So just to give you an, an example, we are deciding the research questions. Like, what are the methodologies we want to use? And they suggested the digital storytelling. I've, I've never used, so I don't have any idea how, how to use this methodology, but I'm, I'm here to learn. So yeah, I'm pretty excited, uh, not just with the, power, power, the sharing power that happening in, in both papers, pretty much in the last one, but also what we can see in the future. So yeah, I'm happy that Lois Schulmark and we have two other young women uh, planning not just, you know, the, the delivery of the activist approach in some sense, but also planning the research questions. So I think it is a, a exciting step that I, I want to see the results for sure. Yeah. And, and sorry, can I just yeah. I was just going to say in terms of the last question and this question, I think um, the sharing of power and engaging in dialogue, I think that is that the sense of not having a title when you're doing this kind of research is really important. Um, so not going as a PhD um, in this or a doctor in that, it's not about having a title. It's more about you being present as um, I think what worked for Carla is that she wasn't there as a researcher. She became a participant herself. To relate to the people, she had to be one of the people, in a sense. She had to be a, um, a team player. She had to um, engage as a participant. So you kind of have to strap off the title of a doctor or who, whoever or whatever title you have in order to actually have an effective um effective outcome. If you want young people to participate, you don't want to take an authoritative figure, you need to go in as, I'm, I, I want to learn from you, kind of 
um, approach. So that's what I wanted to say, but back to you. I love it, Loy. And I always do like a, a minute snippet from from the piece and I put it on as a teaser to this episode and that is what it's gonna be because I think that right there is so powerful is you know you have to strip down the titles you have to go in and Carla I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about the the future of this project because it seems like a, a a true participatory action research project a true ground up like you go into the community and say what do you need and I think sometimes a lot of times we as researchers go in and we ask that question but we drive the agenda somewhere else because we still are curious about something else so looking forward to that um i think we could talk for another hour here but um it's nighttime it's daytime it's afternoon time across the world here so uh i want to thank both of you loy carla for coming on um really really appreciate your time so thanks carla thanks loy thank you for having me thanks thanks so much for and I'll link to the articles in the uh, comment section so you can see the citation and DOI. You can just click on that and get to the article. Um, I want to thank uh, Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing this podcast. And uh, that's all we got. Thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.